Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of the Podcast Network. My name is JT Fox, and we have interviewed some of the biggest names in the world, Mark Wahlberg, Pacino Stallone, Schwarzenegger, countless billionaires, Phil Jackson, Cole Hauser from Yellowstone, just to name a few. But sometimes we do interviews that um, uh, really will serve as a public good for people and also are highly entertaining because they're based, they're true stories and usually movies made about. If you take a look at the Theranos story, the uh, Uber, uh, the the WeWork, this whole kind of theme about taking real life and turning into a movie or episode has become a very hot trend. And the gentleman I'm about to interview has, in fact, had a movie called about him, The Infiltrator, where Brian Cranston, the guy who uh, played the very famous TV show, um, played him and it was a phenomenal movie and I had the opportunity to interview him and because he is G14 classified, don't want to see his face. There is a purpose why we don't see his face for those of you who are watching live. So please welcome Robert Massor. How are you, my friend? I'm fine. Thank you for inviting me. By the way, is that your real name or is that not your real name? Because obviously if that you're is... not going to show your face, then why would you give your real name? No, that is my real name. That's what the, uh, the book and the movie um, is based upon. And um, of course, I, I operated under other names when I was working in long-term undercover. Uh, presently, um, I keep a low profile and um, let's just leave it that way. <laughs> so just the, the premise of this. So you were a money launderer for the likes of Pablo Escobar uh, and some of the world's most notorious criminal. Is that, is that a, and when you say undercover, so were you doing it as like yourself as a business or you're actually working for an agency? Okay. Uh, I was a special agent with the U.S. Customs Office of Enforcement, which is now Homeland Security Investigations, and then subsequently with uh, DEA. And in both instances, I work long-term undercover. I was trained as a, a long-term undercover agent and was mentored by the likes of Joe Pistone that the book and the movie uh, Donnie Brasco is based upon. But uh, I, I was... Uh, it, I, I designed the undercover operation. I also uh, designed the cover, um, my false identity, the businesses I was embedded in, and through those businesses uh, infiltrated uh, the Medellin cartel and the seventh largest privately held bank in the world, BCCI, that was laundering money for them. Let me take that back. So Joe Pistone was Donnie Brasco, the movie with Al Pacino, and uh, I believe it was Johnny Depp. Uh, great movie. When you say you're mentored, what do you mean you're mentored uh, by him? And what did you learn from that? Well, he was one of the um, instructors at the long-term undercover school, uh, both schools that I went through. And um, he imparted with us a lot of his um, techniques, uh, as did other trainers who were there and psychologists that are involved in that process. So, you know, law enforcement agencies have to recognize that this uh, people shouldn't be put into long-term undercover uh, situations just because they speak another language or have some other skill. They really need to go through psychological profiling. They need to go through training and they need to be vetted and, and certified before they do long-term undercover. It's a very unusual experience to live completely uh, unsupervised within the underworld. And if you're not ready for it, you're going to crash and burn. So you often watch in the movies, right? Some of them commit crime. Some of them don't commit crime because they can't is there a parameters like if you have to commit crime in order to keep your cover, like let's say you have to shoot someone because in front and if you don't shoot them, you're going to get shot or you have to do things that are highly illegal to basically build more trust and credibility because you can't be clean in this environment. So what are the rules that you can't and cannot do? So the audience and myself 
uh, can clearly understand. Well, when your undercover operation is designed for the purposes of providing money laundering services to organized crime, you have to have your operational plan approved by the attorney general, his or herself, um, and they give you what's called an attorney general's exemption to commit certain specific crimes. And in this instance, it was money laundering. I'm not allowed to do <laughs> to commit other crimes uh, in the course of doing that. And part of your cover is to set up, uh, set yourself up in a manner where you anticipate others may be wanting to try to get you to do things that are illegal and 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 being prepared to figure out how you're going to get them not uh, you know to to accept you even though you won't commit the crime that they want you to commit so robert a lot of people don't know what money like they know money laundering but they they don't they call it washing money right but they don't really know the specifics can you tell us how exactly money laundering works sure you know i mean there's there's an infinite number of ways in which you can launder money, but we'll stay specific to the story of the infiltrator. And in that instance, um, as is the case now with every other major drug trafficking organization that uh, poisons this planet, um, there are cities, probably 10 or 12 different cities in the United States where money is collected every single day. I mean, I, we used to pick, I used to pick up, once I was accepted into the organization, a million dollars, $2 million on a day especially in the streets of New York, LA, and Miami, but there are many other cities as well. And you're, you're hired for the purposes of getting that money converted into whatever form uh, the, the uh, bad guy or his representative wants you to, to put it in. And in my instance, they wanted it to be untraceable um, in either US dollar checks or US dollar wire uh, transfers that would be issued out of a bank in Panama. So my my uh, responsibility started on the street when we received a million or two million dollars on a given day. And it was then through my cover uh, that they fully understood. And I explained to them that we laundered that money and eventually it popped out into uh, accounts in Panama. I was embedded in real businesses and some of them were very cash oriented businesses. We had a jewelry chain on the East Coast with 30 locations and an air charter service with a uh, a private jet that went from the U.S. to the Bahamas, which was a very easy way for us to be able to move cash out of the U.S. Um, I had a mortgage brokerage business. I was in a mortgage brokerage business, a, a uh, an investment company, and even we had a brokerage firm with a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. It was a very sophisticated front. And um, through those businesses, it was their understanding that we could easily move money around the world and pop it out wherever they wanted it. So the idea is this. So j just so I can understand, or am I wrong? I've got cash because I'm doing something illegal, correct? And what I'm doing is I'm putting that money into legitimate businesses. So it looks like, look, we have sales and ultimately these businesses are going to pay taxes, right? It, it, correct? Is that, so basically it's basically putting this money back into legitimate business. Now, are they actually buying the goods and services or is it just like, look, I went to the jewelry store and I just bought 10,000 Rolexes, but you never really bought the 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 Rolexes, right? You just gave the money, so it looks like I bought Rolex. Is that is that how it works? Well, it can work that way. I mean, I'll give you a really simple example. We had a thing called a carousel of of emeralds. Uh, there was a, an emerald company in Colombia that would ship five million dollars worth of emeralds to Panama, uh, to uh, Cologne, Panama. There, it would make it, we would create the paperwork to make it appear as though those that uh, those emeralds were sold. The emeralds would actually be smuggled back to Colombia and just 
go around and around and around and constantly come through. But the sales from the the uh, emeralds, which were not real sales, uh, then generated an appearance of of revenue for a company that they could then get money from. But there's a lot of different ways in which the black money markets work. I mean, the only thing I remember for economics in college is uh, supply and demand. Okay, so that's got the simple way to look at it. If I'm running a very good business, I have an equal amount of supply and demand. My supply clients of dollars are drug traffickers. Those drug traffickers at times want to get something else. Let's say they want Colombian pesos because they live in Colombia. I need to find a client on the supply on the demand side that wants those dollars. It's very easy. Importers uh, in Colombia who need dollars to buy goods on the international markets want to get rid of those dollars, want to get rid of their pesos and get dollars. But if they go through the official uh, channels, it costs them 28% of their money. They could come to me, a black money market operator, and they can buy cash for 10%. So they save 18%. Now I've got the Colombian pesos and I can give them to my client. So there's a lot, a lot of different ways in which you can do it. It's a very sophisticated thing. That results in things such as just last month, Danske Bank, um, <clears throat> biggest bank in Denmark, was discovered to have moved about $200 billion out of Russia, converting it into dollars. <clears throat> and according to some of the pleadings, this was being done basically for the Taliban and, uh, and Al-Qaeda, who have an opium um, line that gets their opium into uh, Russia and then the Russian mafia actually moves that stuff. So you got to move the capital all over the place. And and depending upon the cover that you need, uh, like I say, there's as many, there, there are as many ways to launder money as there are snowflakes. It's just in, indefinite. It depends upon what your client's needs are, what the problem is at the time and how you can make it look as legitimate as possible. Is there a way of doing it and never getting caught doing it or eventually catches up to you? Well, let's put it this way. Um, there is, according to the United Nations on Drugs and Crime, roughly $2 trillion a year seeking secrecy from money and laundering services. Now, of that $2 trillion, there's about $400 billion a year from the sale of illegal drugs. The Department of Justice seizes at best $1 billion. That's one-fourth of 1%. One so the coffers of these organized, organized criminal organizations grow exponentially, uh, as does their ability to corrupt. And and so, yes, there are many ways to do it where you won't get caught. Is it is uh, it illegal? Then, Go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I was going to say, probably the biggest guy who got caught in the recent past is a guy by the name of Altaf Kanani. Uh, started off in Pakistan, moved his operation to Dubai, was basically the Goldman Sachs for the underworld. He was laundering 14 to $16 billion a year just through his operations. So let me ask you a question. Is it, um, is there a country where let's say I live in a country where this could not be considered wrong by any means. And because I operate in this country and I launder from this country that, that it's not illegal or because obviously in a lot of countries have like kind of report, uh, requirements when you open a bank account and, you know, proof of address, proof of this, proof of that, um, KY agreements, right? So it seems to be a very arduous process when you open a foreign bank account or any bank account these days anywhere in the world so how can they still be able to launder or is the act of of money laundering himself um still illegal anywhere in the world so it doesn't matter but you can go to a country like i'm in iran and i launder money there and they can't touch me because it's it's not illegal there or is there all forms of it is completely illegal 
Well, there's no form of, of laundering profits from an illegal activity uh, that is condoned uh, publicly by any government that I'm aware of. The problem you have is that based upon the political will uh, of a given country, uh, that may or may not be happening more predominantly in that particular country. Let's take a look at Switzerland. You know, up until oh, about 10 years ago, when a lot of the uh, income tax scandals were uh, exposed, where banks, including UBS, Credit Suisse, many of the major, major banks, international banks, admitted to the fact that they conspired with tens of thousands of U.S. citizens to help them to evade income taxes. Well, you know, that was a sport until it was exposed. And, and unfortunately, political will um, wanes at times based upon the influence that organized criminal organizations can impose upon countries. Probably the best example of late, just last year, we extradited the recent past president of Honduras, Juan Orlando Hernandez. Um, he, a room full of senators, his brother, um, basically sold Honduras to the cartels, letting it be a transshipment point for drugs and money. Uh, why did he do that? Well, he got millions of dollars um, in funds that he was able to use to operate his political activities within Honduras and maintain control of the, of the country. So these things happen from time to time. Uh, based upon the political will in a given nation. Can you wash money at a casino these days or because there's so many cameras and they're highly regulated that I can come in with $100,000, get some chips, play a few things, leave, keep my chips, come back another day and cash them in. Is all that really impossible to do now because of the environment or that still happens in casinos? Uh, it's not impossible to do. And it depends upon who you are. Probably the biggest money laundering by, through casinos that's happened at last uh, is in British Columbia in Canada. There has been massive, massive documentation of massive amounts of money being laundered through casinos in, in that part of the world. And, you know, if you go to the Dominican Republic, you know, you'll see a lot of casinos. There's not a lot of movement of people going in and out, but there's a lot on the books. You know, yes, there are ways to do it. Uh, I used to be a courier undercover uh, going from Florida to Las Vegas, where I would meet with the owner of a casino, um, that my my cash that I brought in was put into the cage under a fake name. Uh, we showed a little bit of action. Then we wound up taking the money out. Uh, it left in hundreds. It went in in five, tens, and twenties. And that was so uh, we could make the uh, the package smaller as the money got smuggled out of the United States. So, you know, that kind of stuff, yeah. It depends on who you know, how much money you have. Rules are rules, but I wish they were, but they're not applied equally um, in society. So let me ask you, you obviously took a job that puts your life at risk, right? So the there's a, a very strong possibility that you're going to get caught and die. I mean, that's, you know, especially when you're infiltrating and everything has to go right, because obviously these people are very highly suspicious of individuals that they don't know all of a sudden coming onto the inside. And especially in the countries you're dealing with, they really have no reservation killing people. Why would you want to get into a thing like that? And, and telling me it's for the public good of saving the world. I, you know, I could see that, but it's still your life. You know what I mean? And so it's, I'd say it's on the same level as members of our military and going out there, putting their lives on the risk. But you I think yours would be more dangerous because of the actual work. Well, I, I can tell you 30 days after the first long-term undercover operation, the, the one in the infiltrator story, 
um, two law enforcement agencies and an intelligence agency confirmed that there was a half million dollar contract on my head. Um, but I mean, I didn't get into it thinking that that's something that I was really eager to see happen. Um, I didn't even really plan to get into law enforcement. I, I was a business administration finance major with uh, emphasis in accounting and I uh, thought I was going to become a CPA. And I got a summer job at a law enforcement agency, a very unusual one, uh, at least at that time in my mind, which was called the IRS Intelligence Division, which I thought was an oxymoron, like how can that possibly be? But in fact, they were a very respected and are a very respected law enforcement agency. They were the ones responsible for helping to put the paperwork together that put Al Capone away for the longest period of time uh, because of his income tax evasion. And, and while I was working in that office, uh, I saw them working on drug traffickers, corrupt politicians, um, you name it, people in white collar crime, all types of major, major cases. And uh, one of the cases was a case involving a guy by the name of Frank Lucas who the uh, movie American Gangster uh, was uh, made. Denzel Washington played him. He was the biggest heroin trafficker in uh, New York uh, at that time. And the office that I was in, the money side of the investigation was looking at a bank called Chemical Bank that was laundering money for Frank Lucas and his organization. And I, I actually, because I, mean, I was just a co-op student at that time, so I got coffee and made copies. But I mean, I heard the stories from the guys that were out on the street and they were doing the surveillance and they saw Lucas's guys coming into the bank with duffel bags full of cash. And, uh, and that was being laundered and creating a cover for legitimate appearing businesses. And it just it grabbed my my thinking of like, my gosh, it's amazing. If you follow the money, it'll take you to command and control in criminal organizations that you might not otherwise be able to tell who's really in charge. And, and so I decided that I would forget about being a widget counter and decided that I was going to go into law enforcement. And I was there for 11 years before I did long-term undercover, but I saw what power there was to sophisticated long-term undercover. I became a cop because the same reason I think most cops do. You want to be part of making a difference. But for me, making a difference was being in the trenches. I never wanted to be in management. Uh, for me, making a difference was getting the evidence that nobody else could get any other way and getting the, that actionable information to make things happen. And as I got more and more involved, like in the infiltrator story, I mean, I would get in four or five conversations enough for us to seize a ton of cocaine. Or I got information about the accounts all around the world in which Manuel Noriega's uh, hidden fortunes were located. And, and to be quite honest, what happened, and it took me decades to figure this out, but what happened to me is uh, information became my heroine. I mean, I had to get the next big piece of information. It had to be bigger than the last one. I had to take greater risks to get it for me to feel as though I was achieving my mission. And um, I'm not suggesting that that's the right place for your long-term undercover agent's head to be, but that's where mine was. And, and that's what drove me uh, to do that type of work. Do you think Putin is, is laundering money? <laughs> Personally, uh, he's pulling the strings of those people who are doing it for him. And do I think that we'll ever find that money? Never. Uh, because there are so many people who are facilitators, uh, lawyers, bank, uh, bank officers, um, all types of individuals, financial service providers who make a living servicing this money. Um, and, and so, you know, we can, we can put up all the sanctions we want and yeah, we'll have some success with it, but Putin's fortune, uh, we won't be touching.
So what was Pablo Escobar like? Um, was he a likable guy or just absolutely you hated the guy or was there a part of it that you maybe liked him a little bit? And what was he like? I dealt with his consigliere, uh, his principal attorney, a guy by the name of Santiago Uribe. So Pablo and I never laid eyes on one another. Uh, I worked for Pablo's main, uh, a lot of his immediate reports, uh, Gerardo Moncada, Fernando Galeano. Uh, these were people, if, you, if your audience watches Narcos, the last two episodes of the first year, they talk a lot about uh, Fernando Galeano and, and Gerardo Moncada. Uh, those were the owners of the money that, um, most of the money that uh, I and the other undercover agents working with me uh, moved and and. and on that note, let me say, I, I, I'm no lone wolf in these operations. I was part of a team, and that's the only reason we had success. Um, and, and I think we built a hell of a team at the height of the operation of probably 250 people. But um, I got the oppor opportunity to be kind of the the tip of the, the uh, sword and, and deal with uh, those types of, of individuals. Some of them were you know, unlike what they're portrayed uh, by Hollywood. They spoke two, three languages, were very sophisticated, very educated, had a sixth sense, could smell a cop. Um, and, and and I actually was accused of being a DEA undercover agent because you know these operations do involve other things going on beside me getting information. And as I provided information about millions of dollars being picked up on the streets of New York, it was... Um, the intent of uh, those in charge of the New York office to aggressively do surveillances of the couriers that dropped off money. And uh, despite my pleas, <laughs> that was aggressively done. And, and um, the Medellin cartel had counter surveillance on the streets and they saw all the federal agents that were there. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, some of the guys that I dealt with within the cartel would tell me, Hey, listen, um, make sure you get your guys out there. And what you need to be looking for are gringos, you know, Caucasians who are in really good shape in their late 20s, maybe early 30s, going to be wearing jeans, have pull pullover uh, shirts with collars, solid colors, fanny pack, jogging shoes. Those are the guys that are out there doing the surveillance for the feds. So I went into the office in New York one time. I, I would was scared to death of going near federal offices, but I had just negotiated my partner and I just negotiated a hundred million dollar deal with Santiago Uribe and some other people in the cartel. And, um, and, and so I went in and here's the surveillance team and they're all gringos. They're in their late twenties, early thirties. They've got jeans, uh, jogging shoes and pullover solid shirts with collars. So I tried to get them to, uh, to change their approach. Being from New York, I understand where the New York attitude is. And uh, the, the comments were, you know, well, you're not from here and you really don't, we know what we're doing. And um, and unfortunately that led to Gerardo Moncada screaming on the other side of a phone to my partner that um, I had to be a DEA undercover agent because they were, the DEA was all over the place. And, um, and so I had to talk my way out of that. And it's not an easy thing to do. Let me ask you, so you meet some of these people in your premise of your jobs and you're like, they're great guys. I mean, they're solid. They they seem likable. You like them as a person, but you know they're doing bad things. And, and does that sometimes may affect your ability? Obviously, you're going to do your job, but does that make you think twice? I really like this person um, because the the idea is everybody's like, well, everybody's bad and if they're bad. I'm, I'm going to do 
you know, it's just an easier to do. Did you meet people that were like, oh, so amazing people? And then you're like, I got, I got a job to do, but man, I really like this person. Did that, did you ever encounter that? And how do you overcome those emotions? Sure. I, I think they portrayed that fairly well in the Infiltrator film. Uh, Benjamin Bratt played the role of a guy by the name of Roberto El Cayeno, who was one of the major transporters uh, for the Medellin cartel and major distributors. And um, he and I <clears throat> developed a relationship that some of the agents felt was uh, akin to him thinking that I was the son he never had. He was about 15 years older than me, um, but had two daughters uh, and was married and a bunch of girlfriends and I knew them all. But um, he he was, you know, if it wasn't for the fact that he was committing those crimes, was probably the kind of guy that um, I would have probably become friends with. But uh, you can't let that um, <laughs> interfere with things. It it kind of interfered in a in a very minor sense in that, as we got further into the to the end of the operation, uh, Roberto got arrested about 30 days before the end of the operation because I provided information about him um, having a ton of cocaine delivered uh, into Chelsea in a warehouse in lower Manhattan. And so he got arrested in the presence of the ton of cocaine. And um, I thought that he would suspect me because I was one of the last people he talked with before he got arrested. But um, lo and behold, like four days later, his wife comes to me and says, well, Roberto thinks you're the only one he can trust. So he wants you to take over and, um, and collect from the distributors and pay the suppliers. And, oh, wow. and so um, at that stage, she was pretty desperate because there was a lot of money that had to go to the defense attorneys to pay for Roberto. Um, and so she wanted to run another load and uh, I was in a room with recorders. I knew that uh, she had two daughters that were teenagers at the time. Uh, they were a little bit uh, of, a tr of trouble for them. And I knew Roberto was going away for a long time. So uh, I asked her to step outside the room. And we were at a hotel and we were in the hallway in the uh, stairwell. And I tried to convince her to just let me handle it, not for her to do it. And um, because I really, you know, she was already going to go down for money laundering, but then for drug trafficking as well. Uh, those kids were never going to see their parents for a long period of time. But she was insistent. So I said, OK, fine. We went back in the room and um, and she laid out what it is she wanted to do. And um, uh, but a part of me had kind of hoped that um, she would be able to be there for her daughters. Um, and, and I think. Some people think that that's a sign of weakness. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's, uh, I, I, I'd like to think that our government, the people who have the responsibility of operating our government, um, have a heart. <laughs> and, um, and to a certain extent, um, I, you know, a, a conscience. And so um, I, uh, but yeah, you know, you've got, Is you've got to just push that Let me interrupt you here for a second. I, I'm looking at the the people, certain characters, Bernie Madoff, um, you take a look at FTX, what's happening now. Uh, Andrew Tate, I don't know if you're familiar with what's going on there. Um, and then you have sort of the, because of Netflix, the idolization of Chapo and, and Escobar. Do you think we've become a society where I think people are just so easily gullible by the likability of the individual and just trust whatever it is that they, they say? And that's why so many people, there's so many cases of frauds. I mean, Theranos is another case that Elizabeth Holmes that comes to mind 
Um, you've dealt with a lot of these types of 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 people in your career. Why do you think it's it's happening over and over and over? These types of individual, the Madoff, the Holmes, the Andrew Tates, uh, all that. And you know, what do you think? Well, they have a way. They have a way to appeal to the greed of others, and so that's a part of the of the equation, in my view. And they're they're very very convincing people. Um, and so I think it's a it's a combination of those things. When you talk about Bernie Madoff, I mean, people were being offered rates of return that nobody else could possibly have ever gotten at the time. And and to a certain extent, you know, that's appealing to their uh, to appealing to their greed. Sometimes if uh, if if an offer is too good to be true, it generally isn't. And um, and so uh, I think you could probably apply that in many, many different types of crime. But I'll tell you what, in the drug world. Um, you don't get the opportunity to lie twice. You might get to lie once, but that's it. You know, I mentioned before that Gerardo Moncada and Fernando Galeano were uh, the owners of the funds that um, I and my my fellow undercover agents were moving in the infiltrator story. And they their, their uh, demise is probably a good example of that. Um, they had, at least in the eyes of Pablo Escobar, had hidden about $23 million that they'd gotten from the sale of some of the cocaine and he was applying a tax uh, to anybody who was making money. And so he th saw this as a sign of uh, undermining his credibility and a sign of weakness. So he had them brought to what was then called the cathedral, his self-made jail. And um, they were initially tortured. All their money uh, was turned over. I think there's roughly 500 million of uh, Gerardo Moncada's money that, that, uh, Escobar wound up receiving, but then he had them hung by their feet. They stripped their clothes off, uh, used blow torches to melt the skin off their bodies, and they chopped them up into little pieces, and then they burned them into ash. Wow. So um, that's you know, Bernie Madoff wouldn't do that to you. No, <laughs> or, but, but 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 although for 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 some, by some people though, I think they just take their money. It's a different type of of, of thing, but a lot of people have invested and. Obviously, are screwed and and um, you know it's interesting because we live in a society, Robert. I don't know if you say like they're bad people, mm -hmm. and but because they have the great personality and they've set up the government's against me, the FBI's against me, everybody's corrupt, mm -hmm. and so that when something bad happens to them, they've got like the core audience members that no matter what they say, they're going to believe in them, mm -hmm. right? And right. and and then there are people who absolutely hate these people. And it doesn't matter what they say, they're still going to find them guilty or not. It just, and and now with, especially you have Jordan Belford, like it seems that the criminals per se, people are going to jail, they come back and movies are made about them. They become heroes, right? They become idolized and played by A-list or Hollywood actors. And then they go on teaching about what is it they're doing. And on one hand, you have two books and you consult, but you actually like, you know, uncovered these truths, right? And so is that just the way the world is now? I, you know, I think it is, you know, it's funny. You can learn a lot from kids. And I, I went to an elementary school and I, and I was trying to, uh, to talk about the evils of drugs and, you know, and then of course they're interested in what it is that I, that I did when I was a federal agent. And I showed them some of the pictures that um, related to it. And a lot of the pictures were mountains of cash. And that was the thing they were most interested in is like, how can I get that? Um, you know, <laughs> I tend to wonder if it, it, if that that simplicity of thinking um, just doesn't stay with some people all the way until they, you know, uh, obviously become adults in the world, uh, because you know 
money makes people do some crazy things, unfortunately. True. So it's I want to bring back, um, I want to bring uh, Rick, who uh, is the reason why uh, we're here before. Rick is a friend of mine. He's uh, looks like we're dressed the same today. Um, is a top financial advisor out of Dallas as well. He's a good friend of mine as well. And, and the only reason this interview happened, and by the way, if you guys like this channel, subscribe, like, comment, love to hear your thoughts. Uh, and we'll talk about Robert's books in a couple of seconds. But Rick, you saw Robert at a conference, uh, a broker-dealer conference. And so what is it that you learned from him that you're able to apply to your business? You're on mute, Rick. You're on mute. The, uh, the intricacy of the Zoom. Go ahead, Rick. What I learned was that the, the technology and the advancement of money laundering is so strong and so deep that anyone's life can be affected by this potentially, that you need to be very careful and cautious about information privacy and security and making sure that your, your, your passwords are strong and, and so on. There's many various steps that all of us as individuals need to and should take to protect our own money because no one is immune to being a victim of this right that was the big takeaway that i had from our our conference with robert robert you have a, a couple of books that are people that's anything you want to promote you've been a, a first of all thank you so much uh the whole time i'm trying to lean into the screen i'm like uh-huh he's wearing glasses and i i've been like obsessed <laughs> on 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 seeing and and based on so i <laughs> It's been fascinating for me as well. And and thank you for your honesty and your candor. But you have a, a couple of books that you'd like kind of want to put the word out on there so or people could find more information about you. Sure. My first one, The Infiltrator, was a New York Times bestseller um, and the basis for the movie, The Infiltrator. Um, you can find that on Amazon or you can go to my website, Robert Mazur, M-A-Z-U-R dot com. No space in between the Robert and Mazur. Um, the second book, the one that came out last year, The Betrayal. Uh, it's a story about a second long-term undercover operation. And the reason it's called a betrayal, um, well, there's several betrayals in it, but the most obvious one is that unfortunately, while I was undercover dealing with leaders of the Cali cartel, um, there was a mole within the Drug Enforcement Administration that outed me uh, to the leadership of the Cali cartel. And um, in one instance, I came within three minutes of being kidnapped and killed. And so um, the betrayal focuses on on. We, we learned that there was a mole, but we didn't know who it was. And so part of it was uh, the chase to try to figure out who the mole was. I stayed undercover, even though we knew my cover was burned with some people, uh, basically because the most important part of the mission was to identify and prosecute the mole within the government. Well, first of all, I want to thank you. And Rick, thank you for doing this. And it goes to everybody here. If you're watching and you've got amazing people I can interview, I'd gladly put your face on there and promote you as well uh, as Robert's Honesty and Transparency. It was a great movie. If you haven't seen The Infiltrator, it's actually a really good movie. You should watch it too. And check out Robert's uh, website as well. And remember, I mean, at the end of the day, we're all seeking the truth, although there are different levels of the truth. And there's a hundred million different ways on how to do the wrong thing. And I think if you do the right thing, um, you'll probably live a much longer life and um, you don't have to live with sort of that uh, caster on that shadow because if you do something wrong, you cross that line, it's really hard to come back as well. So, and Robert definitely, uh, and he is a true hero, no matter where you live in the world and you're watching this ever, um, put his life on the line uh, and to protect you inadvertently. And we may never be able to see his face, but his story hopefully will inspire us to take more action and, and hopefully read his book as well. So thank you for being on. By the way, like, subscribe, wherever you're watching this or listening to this, really appreciate it. Put some comments uh, if you're on YouTube and we shall see you next time.